Welcome to the 77th QuackCast. Before we get to the meat of the matter, I'd like to quote Mr. Deity and say thank you, 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 thank you. To all of you who voted for the QuackCast, I got Best Health and Fitness Podcast for the third year in a row. Go me. But actually, it's you guys. Again, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Copyright, Mr. Deity. Probably not. This particular quackcast is called Alternative Vaccination Schedules. Evidently, the seven billionth human being was born on October 31st. Happy birthday and welcome to the earth. If you are unfortunate enough to be born in the developing country or in a fluent California family, you may never receive your vaccinations and have the opportunity to join one of the 4,320,000 who die every year of vaccine preventable diseases, or VPDs. And if you are doubly unlucky, you may be exposed to the illness from an unvaccinated friend, family, or healthcare worker before you get your vaccines and join the ranks of the onlys. The onlys are those who die of vaccine preventable diseases and are often mentioned in the anti-vaccine literature in a sentence like, Vaccine preventable disease X is a mild illness in most children and only kills Y percent of the cases. As I have mentioned many times before, most of the anti-vaccine wackaloons do not care for whom the bell tolls. Now, I am no good at statistics. I took and dropped statistics at least four times in college. Once they got past the bell-shaped curve, it was one big incomprehensible, huh? Part of the problem with statistical concepts, such as risks, both relative and absolute, is it is impossible to get a feel for what they represent. For me, it is like metric measurements. I know what an 8-mile hike represents. I'm not so certain I know what an 8-kilometer hike would do to me. Same with centigrade and liters. I have been unable to internalize what metric means in my day-to-day existence. Some statistics I have to accept with no real feeling as to their magnitude. The estimated 4.3 million deaths from vaccine-preventable illness? That's a number I can't wrap my head around. It translates to about 11,000 people a day. Or the population of my hometown, Portland, dying every month. I still can't imagine that volume of death. In 30 years, I have seen exactly one death from a vaccine-preventable disease, a pregnant female who developed chickenpox and its resultant pneumonia. Chickenpox, hepatitis A and B, and pertussis are the only vaccine-preventable diseases of which I have seen more than one case. The only VPD I see routinely and I should put preventable in quotes because I am not so sure the disease is currently preventable in adults, is the pneumococcus. Certainly vaccination of kids with the conjugate vaccine has led to a decrease in the disease in adults, but it appears to be a temporary victory, and the vaccine for adults, the pneumovax, is of marginal efficacy. I know intellectually that VPDs are a major source of morbidity and mortality in the rest of the world, and that they, along with many other infections, are an airplane flight away from starting an outbreak in the United States. 
It has happened with mumps and measles, and it will happen again. But vaccine-preventable diseases have virtually no impact on my day-to-day experience as an infectious disease doctor and as head of our infection control programs. My time and energy are directed elsewhere. So what is a parent to do? When raising kids in the U.S., there is no need to worry directly about VPDs. It is more a theoretical worry, thanks in large part to vaccines. The childhood plagues of the past are history. And who needs to fret about history when there are real risks to your children? I wonder, given the hassle of getting kids to the pediatrician, how compulsive I would have been about getting my kids vaccinated on schedule if it were not a requirement at school. I would probably have been reasonably on track, like my dental cleaning, but would not have been the model of promptness, given the lack of VPDs in the community. It is nice to have the stick of the educational system to keep me honest, and schools are wise to have immunization as a condition of enrollment. Schools represent an excellent center for rapid infectious disease amplification and spread, and has been key in the spread of influenza outbreaks in the community. Laziness is evidently not the main reason that patients do not get their kids' vaccination, according to the CDC guidelines. Pediatrics this month has an article called Alternative Vaccination Schedule Preferences Among Parents of Young Children that evaluated why parents are using alternative vaccination schedules. They polled the parents of kids between the ages of 6 months and 12 years of age about the utilization of the vaccine schedule. And I can't decide if the results are good or bad given the large number of irascible contrarians in the United States population. Or perhaps I watch too much cable news. I am an optimist at heart, so I suppose the glass is half full, albeit with bile. In this study, 13% of patients interviewed were using an alternative vaccination schedule, but only 2% refused all vaccinations. Most, rather than no vaccination, refused some vaccinations or waited until their child was older before giving a vaccination. So is 2% complete refusers a low number or a high number? Does 13% qualify an only? Or is 87% of vaccination great? Well, no. For most diseases, the coverage rates you want to maximize herd immunity for those who cannot be immunized or cannot respond to the immunization is in the 95% range. So 87% is not cutting it. I always emphasize for the house staff that the first word in my medical subspecialty is infectious. In the old days, it used to be called communicable diseases. Now it's called infectious diseases, not kind of infectious diseases or sort of infectious diseases. These are infectious. These beasts have evolved to rapidly jump from person to person, and it takes very little exposure for vaccine-preventable illnesses to cut loose in populations. Good news, quote, Among the alternative vaccinating parents, only 8% reported using a well-known alternative schedule, such as those promoted by Dr. William Sears, 6%, and Dr. Donald Miller, 2%. So, fortunately, it would appear that the advice of Dr. Sears et al. is being mostly ignored by alternative vaccinators. There is, of course, the bad news. Most, with true American do-it-yourself Dunning-Kruger gumption, quote, 
it was more common for alternative vaccinators to indicate that they themselves, 41%, or a friend, 15%, had developed the schedule. Among the 36% of respondents who endorsed the other response to this query, several indicated in the text-free section that they had worked with their child's physician to develop the alternative schedule, end quote. Just like a second-grade teacher coming up with airborne, and who better to come up with flu and cold remedies than a second-grade teacher, Americans are doing it themselves. A do-it-yourself vaccination schedule flabbers my gaster. Having spent most of my adult life thinking about infections and their treatment and prevention, I find the field almost impossibly difficult. The decisions that go into the CDC vaccination schedule represent the best opinion of some of the brightest and most experienced minds in medicine who are not me. That's a joke, really. I would only question the CDC if I had spent three professional lifetimes in the field of vaccination. And yet, time with the Googles and talking with friends and family is evidently enough to come up with your own approach to the vaccination schedule. I am glad they are sticking with vaccination and not coming up with the appropriate time to do an appendectomy or how to fly my airplane. I have asked this in the past, but what is it about medicine that people think they know better with no experience and little education? It is my field of expertise, and I am more often than not uncertain if I know better. It would appear that physicians may be a bigger problem. Codependent is the term, I think. While 8% had to change providers because they wanted to use an alternative schedule, quote, 30% of the patient's doctors seem hesitant to go along with their vaccination preferences, but still agreed to do so. 40% indicated that their child doctors seemed supportive of their vaccination preferences, and 22% indicated that their child's doctor had been the one to suggest using an alternative vaccination schedule. Of the 2064 respondents, 59 22% of 13%, found a physician who recommended an alternative schedule. We do not know if that is a bias. Patients know the dirty little secret about their doctor when choosing them for their child, that they didn't support the standard vaccination schedule. Or the number of docs promoting potentially dangerous vaccination schedules is much higher than I would have thought. Still, that is almost 3% of doctors who are, well, Wackaloons. 3% is not an only. 3% is appalling. Would you want 3% of your surgeons to have a severe shake or 3% of your pilots to have narcolepsy? There's a recent study that the national meetings that showed that new graduates of residency programs are much less likely than older doctors to consider vaccines to be both safe and effective. So I don't think they're doing a very good job of teaching primary care doctors in residency programs. It is also interesting to see what vaccine the patients elected not to give their kids or to delay in giving. They were more likely not to give vaccines for influenza or varicella or rotavirus and more likely to give their kids vaccines for polio, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, and haemophilus. The measles, mumps, rubella was in the 26% range of people who refused this vaccine, and 54% delayed that vaccine. It reminds me of the Eisenberg article in the New England Journal of Medicine, where it was purported that 35% of Americans use alternative medicine. 
when you look at the data, it is only by using an extremely broad definition of unconventional medicine, including relaxation techniques in commercial weight loss programs, could the one in three statistic be reached. Real wackaloon therapies like homeopathy and energy therapies were in the 1% range. I found the table of unconventional medicine use that is continually favorably spun by those who promote alternative medicine not that worrisome. Americans are not as gullible as most scam proponents would wish. I try and keep that in mind when I watch the presidential debates. Repeat after me. Americans are not that gullible. Americans are not that gullible. Even though AOA, Jenny McCarthy, and others have worked hard to spread fear about vaccinations and have gladly taken credit for that fear, it appears that the message is not as effective as you might wish. The list is very arguably reassuring. As far as disease severity is concerned, the list is roughly an order of morbidity and mortality risk for kids. If I were forced to rank vaccines in the order I would give them up, that is about the order I would do it. I would give up the flu vaccine first and polio and pertussis last. Although it is akin to deciding in what order I would like my organs removed, I would just soon keep them all. Thank you very much. However, a glass 6 to 86% empty is still not full. Herd immunity and group benefits are, I know, a poor reason to recommend vaccinations. Presidential politics reminds me that there is always a strong screw you sentiment in the United States. I only saw it on The Daily Show, but I think Ron Paul being asked if he would let an uninsured trauma patient just die because of lack of insurance to be the archetype of that attitude. Being your brother's keeper is low on the U.S. list of things to do. And if my child's lack of vaccination leads to someone else's illness and death, meh, so be it. There was a time when the concept of a rising tide lifting all boats was a public health concept embraced by both when we work together for the common good. Life in medicine has demonstrated that this idea, if indeed it was once alive, is dead and buried with a stake in the heart, beheaded and covered with garlic. Not that public health and health care is a vampire. The attitude of me first is oddly seen in healthcare workers. Now, I subscribe to the idea that in medicine you have an obligation to always put your patients first. Despite hospitalized patients being particularly susceptible to acquiring infections, that about one in five cases of flu are subclinical, and if acquired in the hospital, the patient has a 27% chance of dying of influenza. So a healthcare worker could come to work shedding flu and not know it, give it to their patient, and have a 20% chance if that patient develops the flu in the hospital of dying from influenza. That said, 36% or more of healthcare workers refuse the flu vaccine each year. It is not that healthcare workers have some special knowledge that prevents them from receiving the flu vaccination. They give the same old dumbass reasons every year. Still, even small decreases in vaccination rates have disproportionate adverse consequences. For example, a 1% increase in the proportion of school-aged children who are under-immunized leads to a risk of pertussis infection amongst the fully vaccinated children to double. I would wager that there are similar ill effects of avoiding other vaccines. It would seem plausible. But how does a parent 
understand the abstract concept and act accordingly when there is no disease in their immediate environment. Only Sherlock Holmes was wise enough to understand the significance of the dog that did not bark. I had a similar problem with hand hygiene for years. People never operated as if the lack of hand washing today leads to an infection tomorrow. It took a decade of intensive work as well as a change in how hands are hygienated from soap and water to alcohol foam that took the rates of hand hygiene in my hospitals from 20% to 95% with the resultant decrease in infections. Although I suspect the real driving force was the knowledge that infection rates were going to be published for all to see. Public embarrassment is a powerful motivator. The main reason 61% of patients altered the vaccination schedule was it seemed safer. It is better to feel safe than to be safe. The spirit of Fernando lives on. These patients were also more likely to see the risk of disease and transmission to be less and to have more non-mainstream vaccination beliefs. It seems that the too-many-too-soon mantra of the anti-vax proponents is resonating with the alternative vaccinators. If there is a fear of autism as a reason for changing the schedule, it was not addressed in the paper. However, by delaying the vaccination past the age of onset of autism diagnosis, patients may feel safer in giving their child the vaccines. It would also have been interesting to know what particular fears and experiences led to the use of an alternative vaccination schedule. Rare adverse experiences, even if not causal, have a disproportionate influence on future behavior. I know this clinically, as I remember bad outcomes with far more clarity than my successes. Even when I know that a complication was unrelated to my therapeutic intervention or was a known but rare complication of care, like deafness from aminoglycosides for the treatment of enterococcal endocarditis, where at least I can rationalize that it was the occasional misfortune that happens as the part of the best of care, on occasion I still have to fight the urge not to repeat the past intervention for fear of a repeat of the same complication. It is hard to not give in to the fear, even when I know the fear is irrational. It could be worse. The glass could have been even emptier. Quote, Nearly one in four patients, 22%, following the recommended schedule, disagreed or strongly disagreed that the schedule recommended by vaccine experts was the best one to follow. Similarly, one in five patients who followed the recommended vaccine schedule thought that delaying vaccine doses was safer than providing them according to the recommended schedule, end quote. I do find that a curiosity, that a significant number of parents were choosing to do something to their kids that they did not think was best for them. There is no reason given for that choice, probably because the school mandated it, but there appears to be a sizable number. Among the alternative vaccinating parents, only 8% reported using a well-known alternative schedule, such as those promoted by Dr. William Sears, 6%, and Dr. Donald Miller, 2%. So, fortunately, it would appear that the advice of Dr. Sears et al. is being mostly ignored by alternative vaccinators. There is, of course... The bad news. Most, with true American do-it-yourself Dunning-Kruger gumption, quote, it was more common for alternative vaccinators to indicate that they themselves as any topic in medicine. Vaccines are safe. They are effective. 
They are the best bet for keeping your child and your community healthy. And it's to get vaccinated and to do it on schedule. There are people who see the issue differently, and as often the case, the reasons are more subtle and complicated than one would expect. And there is still much to be understood as to why people are airborne, and who better to come up with flu and cold remedies than a second grade teacher. Americans are doing it themselves. A do-it-yourself vaccination schedule in spacedmedicine.org site. Otherwise, I will see you next time for the 78th Quackcast.